Hey, Reach Montreal, and anybody else that is joining us online for this Good Friday service. Um, this is an important part of, year, of the year for us. It's an important week as we look at Holy Week and the Passion Week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. And specifically, as we reflect on Good Friday, as we look forward to Easter Sunday and the reality of the resurrection and the historical reality uh, that that changes all history and it changes everything for all people. So I'm really looking forward to you joining us for that. Uh, But today, I want us to slow down a little bit and focus specifically on Jesus' crucifixion. And for some of us, this might be the only time of the year that we're able to or that we're invited to think deeply and truly and, and seriously about the crucifixion. But why this is even more important is that it's important to understand who Jesus is and why his death matters. It's easy to get too familiar with Jesus' death and actually lose the significance of his death. And so today, we want to look at that in particular. We want to look specifically at why did Jesus die? Why does it matter? And how does it change everything for everyone everywhere? So before we jump in to the text, let me just pray for us. Father, we just thank you that at this time of year, we celebrate that you are a God who is not far off, and that you are a God of of comfort, that you are a God who saves and rescues. You rescue those who are far from you, you rescue those who are pursuing other things, and you bring them to yourself. And so I just pray that today, as we look at these key texts, as we look at the significance of you, Jesus, who you are, and the significance of your death, and what it changes for all people everywhere, that you would just use this as a way to invite us into experiencing life true life in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we get into this, it's it's always interesting at this time of the year because there seems to be more reflection in our culture about death, about death itself. And even spring, as we come out of this amazing season called winter, where winter just kind of feels like a death everywhere of all things, including sunlight and plants and trees and flowers. Uh, It's amazing that as we thaw um, in our season from winter to spring, we also start to thaw a little bit in our, in our thinking and in our heart world and in our thought world. But today in the West, in, in North America in particular, we don't quite know what to do with death. We don't quite know how to talk about it. We don't quite know how to reflect deeply on it. And so what ends up happening is our, our daily lives are really just spent doing everything that we can to try to almost deflect our gaze from the reality of death, from, from death generally and the reality of it and the inevitability of it, but also our own mortality specifically. And culturally, that's left us in a strange place and it's, it's caused us to do interesting things where we could go to funerals and instead of having them be funerals, we we try to say that they are celebrations of life. Or that we go to funerals and we say that everybody is, is in a better place now. And we're thankful for that, regardless of how they lived. Or we just kind of comfort everyone and, and one another by saying things like, well, well, death is nothing to be afraid of. Or, or it's just a natural process or, or it's just a part of life. But is that true? Is that a a good way to reflect on and think about death. Uh, Famed British editor Diana Athill wrote a very well-known article, an essay, um, many years ago called It's Silly to be Afraid of Being Dead. It's Silly to be Frightened of Being Dead. And she captures this modern kind of secular 
ethic around death where she makes the argument that death is a, quote, a perfectly natural process. That it shouldn't be called the end of life because it's actually a part of life. And she sums up her whole thinking and our cultural thinking on this by saying, quote, death is inevitable and natural and it can't be too bad, end quote. You see, in our hyper-individualistic culture, with no moral absolutes or transcendent meaning of origins, identity, or destiny, we, we shrug our shoulders in the face of death. We, we kind of just have a, an apathetic view of death and we shrug our shoulders and just kind of say, well, eh, it's coming. Well, it's, it's a part of life. When in reality, death is the most unnatural and disruptive thing to ever happen to life. Death is quite literally the reversal of all things that give us life. It's a complete upending of all that is truly good. And no other culture, no other civilization is so ill-equipped to process the universal and inevitable reality of death as we are today. And we're feeling it press in around us. One of the few universal human experiences that we all will have to go through, we spend most of our days and most of our lives avoiding making eye contact with it. Something like the coronavirus and some of the changes that are being caused by COVID-19 forces us to look at our own mortality again. It's sobering, it slows us down, it humbles us. And that can bring a lot of really good things. That can give birth to a lot of really good reflection. And I think it should. Now, Pastor Tim Keller kind of identifies this same thing in our culture. And he he tries to help us think through the underlying worldview that holds this view of death up. And he he points out that in a culture where our highest good is self-actualization, and individual freedom, and, and the pursuit of kind of like discovering your authentic self, What ends up happening is death just becomes something that we push further and further and further away, although it is coming to each of us. And Tim Keller in his book, Making Sense of God, he he sums it up well for us this way. He says, the great trouble with that story, however, is that it does not do what every other worldview and cultural narrative has sought to do in the past. It cannot incorporate into itself and render meaningful the single most immutable and certain fact of human life, death. And he goes on, All ancient myths and legends that deal with death depict it as an intrusion, an aberration, and a monstrosity. It always appears because something has gone wrong. You will not find the accumulated wisdom of the ages insisting that death is perfectly natural. Death is not the way it is supposed to be. And I think Tim Keller is right. And thankfully, rather than see death as it is, what we have done in our culture, regrettably, is that we've made peace with death. Rather than look at it for what it is and that it's a disruption of all things that are good and beautiful and life-giving, we've actually just come to make peace with death and instead just settled for living a good life while we're here. And thankfully for us, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Christian 
narrative offers us a better and truer story. One of a God that rather than just make peace with death and shrug at it, or rather than just make peace with death and, and, and spend life kind of like looking away from it, it's the true story about a God who takes death seriously, who sees death appropriately as the intrusion that it is. He steps into death himself and he takes it on himself to offer true peace by his own death. Now that's good news. And on Good Friday, this is the good news that we get to celebrate. And I think why this is important for us is that reflecting well on death is actually the way that we're invited to reflect well on our life. And maybe for some of you, thinking about your life and what you're accomplishing and where it's all going to end, maybe that in and of itself is one of the reasons why avoiding thinking about death is so natural and easy. Uniquely, though, Jesus' life and the way he spoke about life and death reveals a God who turns and faces death head on doesn't shy away from talking about it, but also doesn't lean into talking about it with, with some, like a morbid obsession, but instead faces death head on, acknowledges it as the unnatural universal disruption that it is, and then offers you and I freedom from it. And that's, that's the good news. The apostle Paul is a product of this good news. If you don't know anything about the Apostle Paul, this guy, his, his track record was, was really bad. He was persecuting Christians and persecuting the church. He was the one overseeing kind of like, let's execute these ones. Let's ex- execute these Christians until he came into a life-changing and life-giving encounter with Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul writes a letter to the church in Rome and in Romans chapter five, verse six through eight, here's what he tells us. Listen to this. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and he died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. He's just trying to level with us. But God, but God is different. He sees it differently. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. The God that's revealed to us in Jesus Christ of Nazareth doesn't only take death seriously, he also takes life seriously. He takes death seriously and freely and willingly enters into death in order to offer you and I life, in order to deliver human beings and all creation from the power and penalty of death. So just just listen to the, the good news here. Death what is inevitable for you and me, it is inevitable. God freely takes on himself, freely chooses and willingly enters into death for you and me. That's what Paul is saying here about the work of Christ. What you and I will experience in death, God freely and willingly chooses to experience to offer us freedom from death. Now that's the good news of Good Friday. That's why we can reflect on the death of Jesus Christ and not just kind of get somber for a moment and shed some tears about the death of an innocent man, but that we can actually see the significance of what Christ was accomplishing that afternoon on the cross. 
But Jesus' death that afternoon on the cross only matters if we understand who Jesus is and what sin is. And I think sometimes in our culture, in our Christian kind of subculture, we've, we've reduced the gospel so much so that we could say something like, Jesus died for your sins and expect that we know what that means. But many of us don't. So here's what I would say. As we look at who Jesus is and what sin does, the what of Good Friday, what actually happened on Good Friday, has to flow from the who of Good Friday. Who was Good Friday about? What was Jesus doing? Who Jesus is? And who was Good Friday for? Jesus died for your sins loses meaning if we don't understand Jesus or sin. So we want to look at both of those this morning and reflect well on them by starting to look specifically at what is our problem. I mean, what what is the problem? What is sin? How do we understand this? And if you were to ask anyone what what our main problem is as human beings, we would have lots of different answers, right? Some would talk about economic problems or, or social problems or emotional and mental problems. That's our core issue as human beings. Or maybe it's racial or ethnic tensions or political problems. That, that's our main issue. If we could just only solve that, then, then we would able, be able to flourish as a race. As humanity, we would flourish if we could just solve that. Well, the Bible doesn't point to political or, or economic or social or, or emotional things as the core problem. Instead, the Bible says that those things are symptoms of the core problem. And the story of the Bible comes at you and I and suggests that the core problem is sin. That the core problem is, is actually relational and it's a relational breach specifically between you and who you were, you were created for. That all other problems, all other things and issues and complications and challenges that we face are only symptoms of the true underlying condition of the human heart, which is that you and I are experiencing a not-at-homeness, a homesickness because of a breach in our relationship with the God we were created for. And in, in order to understand this, the Bible always points us back, it kind of hyperlinks us back to the true story of origins in the book of Genesis, And the book of Genesis is this beautiful, poetic work. It gives us the building blocks of origins and and meaning and destiny and morality. And what Genesis tells us is that human beings were created specifically in the likeness of God as image bearers. And it's actually a royal term that the Bible uses to say that man and woman were, were created in the image of God to reflect what God is like and specifically given a certain amount of authority to rule over creation like God does. That you and I as image bearers were created as kind of little mirrors to reflect back into creation who God is and what God is like. So that you and I, our purpose, the reason why we are, is to know God and be known by God. And then take care of everything that we're given as a way to point back to the nature and character of God. And that's good. That's good news. And throughout the Genesis narrative, God creates and he says it's, it's good. But then things break down. Then something changes. So rather than enjoy life under God's rule as true king, with us ruling over the things that he's given us as image bearers, 
living dependence on God, what happens is we start to pursue independence from God. We choose self-rule over God's rule. And ultimately, we see the story progress and it leads to death. It leads to the decay and the disorder and the breaking down of all things, chiefly and in its core shape, our relationship with God. So just hear me, the Bible comes at us and talks about sin, not just kind of as a a moral issue of when you and I do bad things or a behavioral one, but it's a relational one. That sin is a relational issue. It's when you and I neglect our image-bearing job description and we pursue freedom from God in things that are not God. So at the core of this is not just how are you going to live your life to try to do good things and be a good person. The core of this is what you and I look to to tell us who we are. And the result in the garden and the result today that we see in the world still is that sin ultimately dethrones God and enthrones self. And in the process of that disordering, chaos is introduced and both God and self are devalued that we lose God being enthroned correctly. And instead we dethrone God and enthrone ourself and everything is reversed. So the chief issue here of sin and needing an answer for sin isn't that sin is bad things we do. It's that we overvalue the wrong things. It's that we live our lives serving non-gods, hoping that they can give us what only God can that we end up looking for life and pursuing things that ultimately will only leave us death. So so just hear me on this and not to be morbid, but, but regardless of how much money you and I make, how much success we experience, how much influence we're able to have, how cute our family is or how nice our neighborhood and home is, death comes and wipes the, the slate clean. Death comes and takes away all of that. So what are we left with? If we live for those things and death just comes and wipes all of that away, what are we left with? And that's the question that we are invited to slow down and reflect well on as we reflect well on death and that it is coming to wipe that that slate clean, that it also needs to force us to look at our life and the direction that it's heading, and what we're living for, and what we're building our life on. So important. And as the story in Genesis progresses, what it tells us is since that moment, since the fall, since the intrusion of sin and death, what you and I have experienced, this this nag of not-at-homeness, this feeling of homesickness, this feeling of that, that thing that we can't quite scratch, that value deep down, that transcendence that we're all looking for, all that's telling us is that we have been running around outside of the garden trying to get back in. That you and I have been running around outside the garden trying to get home and that we're dying to live. That we're looking for freedom and life and things that ultimately are going to have death wipe them clean. And the Bible and all of history is just a showcase of that human condition, a showcase of the human heart looking for freedom in things that ultimately will be silenced by death. Why? Well, as the Bible story progresses, freedom from God leads ultimately to slavery and to death. 
in the story of the Bible, that's the bad news. But in the story of the Bible, the good news is that there also is this God who leaves the garden too and comes after you and I and pursues us through deserts and wilderness and strange places to try to bring us back home. That, that this is a God who pursues rebels, who pursues you and I as we are looking for satisfaction in other things, that he's, he's wooing our heart and he's drawing us back to himself to say, you will not find rest in those things because you were made for me. And Good Friday looks at the climax of that because we see a God who not only pursues us, but a God who substitutes himself for us. A God who comes and offers us not just pardon from sin, not just assurance that we can go to heaven one day, but a God that comes and offers us himself so that we can experience life to the fullest now and forever. The Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright writes in his book, The Day the Revolution Began, speaking of the crucifixion. It's just a, a marvelous work. Here's what he says. When humans turn from worshiping the one God to worshiping anything else instead, anything within the created order at all, the problem is not just that they do wrong things, distorting their human minds and bodies and hearts and everything else, though of course that is true as well. Here's what he says. This is vital for grasping the meaning of Jesus' crucifixion. Here's what happens. They, you and I, give to whatever idol they are worshiping the power and authority that they, the humans, were supposed to be exercising in the first place. Worshiping things other than the one true God and distorting our human behavior in consequence is the very essence of sin. Idolatry and sin are, in the last analysis, a failure of responsibility and the result is slavery and finally death. You see the key connection that N.T. Wright makes here between sin, life and death, and idolatry. And the Bible calls idols, um, uses the word idol just to say anything that's not God that we look to as God, that we look to to give us an identity that ultimately God designed us for. Now, our appetite for freedom from God and our pursuit of idols is exactly why we need Good Friday. It's exactly why you and I need the cross. Our shoulder shrug to death is exactly why we need the cross. But what did the cross actually do? What did Jesus' crucifixion actually do to death? Well, the Apostle Paul writes another letter to a younger man called Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, he says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator, one bridge between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who did what? Gave himself as a ransom for all and offered himself in exchange for everyone held captive by sin to set them all free. You see, the great exchange that is made on the cross shows up to reverse the tragic exchange that you and I made in the garden the tragic exchange that you and I make every day where we dethrone God and enthrone self. And in the cross, we see a great exchange where God takes the position of crucified criminal in order to make the great exchange and give us mercy. Jesus's death renders all things that have power over you and I powerless. 
that you and I being held captive by non-gods, you and I being held captive by things that can't give us what only God can, the cross silences the power of all of those things, including death itself. It sets us free from the ever-present nag of chasing freedom in things that will never ultimately and eternally satisfy us. And N.T. Wright sums this up perfectly by saying his death, Christ's death, the climax of his work of inaugurating God's kingdom on earth as in heaven was the victory over the destructive powers let loose into the world, not simply through human wrongdoing, but through the human failure to be image bearers, to worship the creator and reflect his wise stewardship into the world. I love how N.T. Wright shows us that this is actually a failure of responsibility. It's that we've actually given what rightfully given to us over to things that don't deserve them. That we've given our life, which is given to us by God, over to things that ultimately will not give us life. And Jesus, as the image bearer of God, the one who hasn't compromised on that responsibility, the only one who truly has shown up and perfectly fulfilled that vocation, he comes as the perfect image bearer to reverse the curse, to reverse everything that sin has introduced and ultimately death. And on the day of his crucifixion, nailed to the cross above Jesus's head was a sign that read, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And it was written there in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The reason why is because in the first century, there would be a Roman public record of crimes. And in the first century, when a debt was owed, they would issue a certificate of debt. And that certificate of debt, specifically when a criminal was crucified, would get hung above their head to show all passerbys and the audience and the crowds why they were being crucified. So on that afternoon, as Jesus hung there, his crime was that he proclaimed himself as the king of the Jews, as the king. The reason why Jesus was put on the cross wasn't because he was a political uh, revolutionary who was messing with Caesar and Rome. It wasn't just because he, he disrupted the religious order of the Pharisees and the Jews. It was because throughout his entire life, what he did is he showed and proved and demonstrated that he himself is God in flesh, that he is the image bearer of God truly and perfectly and eternally. And on that afternoon, as the sun began to set, Jesus wasn't paying a debt to Caesar for his crimes against the empire. He wasn't canceling the debt that he had against some religious order of things. He was canceling the debt against every man and woman in order to offer freedom from the power and penalty of sin. He was offering freedom from sin-sick hearts that keep us wrapped up in a cycle of living for things that ultimately do not satisfy and give us life. And when a Roman certificate of debt was paid, when it was finally paid in full, what they would do similar to us is they'd put a stamp on it and the stamp would be, be one word. It was tetelestai. And when they put tetelestai on there, what it meant is it was, it was paid in full. That the debt is paid, it is, it is finished. The debt is over. 
And as Jesus breathes his last breath on the cross, the day that he was crucified, one word falls off his lips and it's tetelestai. It is finished. The great exchange between God and humanity is finished. The reversal of the tragic exchange that humanity made in the garden by enthroning ourself and dethroning God is finished. That God is rightly enthroned as the author and finisher of life through and in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the King of not just the Jews, but of all creation. And that day, as Jesus hung on the cross with a sign above his head that ridiculed him for who he said he was, and as it is finished, rolled off his lips, the crowds and bystanders and bystanders and Roman guards uh, ridiculed and mocked him for being there by saying, well, if you're the king, come on, if you're the king, save yourself. You've gone around telling us all this stuff about you being the king. Why don't you save yourself? But Jesus, perfectly silent and perfectly innocent, didn't save himself that day. Because that day, the first Good Friday, Jesus wasn't thinking about saving himself at all. He was thinking about saving you and me. He was thinking about not reversing just his own inconvenient place on the cross, but he was thinking about your and my debt to be paid so that he could finally, once and for all, pay for sin. And to capture that image, what Jesus does for his followers and what Jesus does for all of the crowds is that Jesus leaves specifically his disciples with a mental picture for us in the gospel biographies, leaves, us, leaves his followers with a mental picture of what his crucifixion actually did. You see, on the eve of his betrayal and his arrest and torture and crucifixion, Jesus celebrates, as a first century Jew would, the Passover Seder. And this was an amazing feast. This was a big deal for the Jewish community for thousands of years. And this was a meal, a party, a celebration, a feast that commemorated freedom from slavery from Egypt. It looked specifically at the Passover that we read about in Exodus 12. And we see in the story of the Exodus that Israel, just like every man and woman, has walked away from their covenant responsibility as image bearers to reflect back to creation what God is like and it has led them where? To slavery. That they're enslaved to the Egyptian powers. And what God does for the Passover, the eve before he's about to release Israel from slavery, he commands Israel to, to sacrifice a pure lamb, to smear its blood on the doorposts of their homes with the promise that as justice and judgment and destruction comes, he would pass over them and ultimately use that as the way to break the bondage, bondage of slavery from Egypt. And every year since that first Passover, the Jewish community celebrated that with the meal, the Passover meal, with unleavened bread and wine and the Passover lamb. Now, on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, we read in Matthew's biography in the gospel, in chapter 26, Jesus takes the Passover meal and he applies it fresh once and for all for his disciples. Watch what Matthew tells us here. And as they were eating during the Passover meal, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it 
Then he broke it in pieces and he gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them and he said, each of you drink from it for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words. I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Now to us, this sounds religious and interesting. To Jesus's followers in the first century, this would have been so scandalous and shocking. They wouldn't have understood the gravity of this until the next afternoon with Jesus hanging on the cross. Because what Jesus does in this moment with the Passover is he takes everything about the Passover, everything that Israel knew about the Exodus, and he applies it fresh to say to them that this, what is, what is about to happen tomorrow afternoon, what is about to happen, this is the Passover that is going to end all Passovers. This is the true Exodus that is going to offer freedom to all people everywhere forever. And just like on the eve of the first Exodus, before the Passover, innocent blood was shed to free slaves. The eve of this Passover, the last Passover, was an offer of freedom to all people of all time. But if you noticed, one thing, one key thing is missing from Jesus's Passover feast with his disciples, and that's the lamb. That would have been for the disciples entirely unthinkable. Where is, like, where's the lamb? Where, where is it? Like this, we've done this for a long time. These are grown men. Like we, we've, we've had the Passover Seder. We know what to do. We know what ingredients it needs. Where's the lamb? Jesus leaves the centerpiece out of the Passover feast because he is the Passover lamb. He is the one whose blood is about to be shed the very next morning less than 24 hours later for the sins of the world to offer freedom to slaves, to offer power to all of us who are giving our life over to non-gods. He offers that to us. And it makes a very bold statement to his first disciples just as it makes to us today, 2,000 years later, that every Jewish Passover since the Exodus in ancient Egypt was only pointing to this moment. It was pointing to that very Passover. It's that next day that John the baptizer's cry of behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world comes true. It's where that statement comes to fruition and Jesus points his disciples' eyes back to the Passover in order to point them forward to what he is about to accomplish the next afternoon. And for you and I, our gaze is directed the same way. Because the next morning, Jesus hung on the cross and he declared, Tetelestai, it is finished. That everything that has power over you and I, everything we've given our life over to, every single time we have neglected the identity that we are born with and given by God, that that is finished and we are now empowered by a life that death cannot touch. And as we we start to shift our focus 
towards Easter Sunday and start to look at what the implications of this kingdom rule is. Today, we slow down and we look specifically at celebrating the Passover now. That's what Good Friday is about. And so if you have prepared your bread and your wine or your juice, you had an opportunity to do that and you're comfortable doing that with us like this, as different and strange as it may be, um, I just want to take a, a minute to do exactly what Jesus was doing with his disciples the eve of his crucifixion. Because for us, we are on the other side of the cross and we get to enjoy and experience this life freely. The invitation is to you and to me to turn away from all things that promise to give us life that don't satisfy and instead bring our life and lay it down at the feet of the one who took himself onto the cross for you and me. So if you do have your elements, I just want to take the elements in turn. We take the bread. Let me just pray for us as we do that. Jesus, we don't need to kill ourselves and work our body into the ground for things that, that ultimately won't satisfy. Because you, oh God, you took all of the debt and penalty that is rightly due to us and the curse of sin and you reversed it by your own death. And so Jesus, as we hold this bread, we reflect specifically on your broken body on the cross. That what we are going to experience inevitably in death, you freely and willingly chose to take on yourself on our behalf. And as the image bearer, Jesus, you, you broke your body for us. And so now as we hold this symbol, we come to you again, openly and humbly, and ask God that you would use this, your brokenness, to repair us. Let's take the bread together now. And then Jesus also took the cup and he took the wine. And it's interesting that in the Passover meal, there's a few different cups that they would use and drink from. And Jesus specifically hones in on the third cup. And that third cup is one that, that shows God's arm to be strong. He's, he's, he's a mighty warrior. He's, he's powerful. And Jesus does that on purpose because I think that the very next day, his disciples aren't going to understand how the crucifixion is an act of power. They're going to see the act of crucifixion as the kingdom being lost because their ruler is gone. And Jesus takes the cup and he says, I'm, never, I'm not going to drink of this again until we are together in the kingdom when the kingdom of God fully has come. And he takes this and he drinks it with his disciples to symbolize what he's about to do with his own blood the very next day. So take the cup. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that it is your lifeblood that was shed for us that is the invitation for us to experience life. And as strange as it may seem, and as, as, as foolish as the cross is to us sometimes as we think through how crazy it is that you've done this, God, we just humbly sit and are, are just silenced by the fact that you poured out your own blood on our behalf to save us. 
So as we hold this symbol, I just pray that you would use it as a way for us to reflect well on your death and on ours and that we would choose life today because the invitation is offered through your shed blood on the cross. So as we take it, we just ask that you would use it again, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the cup. And now, for the next couple days, as we finish Holy Week, as we reflect well on the reality of the crucifixion, we get to start to shift our gaze away from the death of Christ to the life of Christ. We get to look at the reality of the resurrection on Sunday. So let me pray for us to finish our time on Good Friday and we look forward to you joining us again on Easter Sunday as we get to gather and hear about the best news, the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that we are able to still do this as a church and for those joining us, I just pray that you would use this, that you would use technology and and these digital platforms to give us an opportunity to reflect well, to to slow down, to, to really consider these things well. And that God, you have pursued us, not just to death, but through it to give us life. So we just give ourselves to you in response because it's the only right full response that you gave your life for us that we can give our life back to you. So Jesus, we invite you into this and ask that you just continue to use this week and this weekend to shift our gaze to you and that it would continue to invite us to give us true life in you and through you. And we ask these things in the only name that matters. In Jesus' name, amen.